The audience is the last composer because they really, you, you can do whatever you want, but they hear based on what their ears and mind are culturally trained for. Um, and so that makes a big, big difference. Hello, welcome to the show. This is And If Love Remains. My very special guest is again, Dr. Elias Axel Pedersen. Um, for those who didn't hear part one, I would strongly recommend go listen to part one. We talk a little bit about um, Elias and, and his life and uh, some cultural uh, thing, the art. And we, we start our um, exploration into uh, pictures uh, at an expedition. Um, and so just a little bit about Elias. Um, he's a concert pianist. He has over 600 performances to his name. He is a Mason and Hamblin concert artist. Um, he is an educator um, and an all-around good guy, my friend. I'm very <laughs> grateful to have him on the show. And, and one of the smartest guys I know, the guy, my go-to guy when it comes to concert music. So um, this, is, this is very exciting to talk more about pictures so welcome to the show, Elias. Oh, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me back. I'm really excited to get into this piece. I'm kind of rearing to go. So we're talking about pictures at an expedition. expedition and, and so yeah. let's back up and just talk, just just quickly go through the um, the background of it, how mm -hmm. it came to be, um, and and generally what are what are people listening to when they're listening to this? Sure. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'll give a little overview. Thanks for the introduction again. Uh, and so this is. Well, we're talking about Mussorgsky, Modest Mussorgsky, his pictures at an exposition. And this piece was influenced or basically based on uh, an exposition of artworks, sculptures, etc., uh, paintings, watercolors. I'm trying to think what else was there, sketches um, and designs by one of his friends, Victor Hartman. And he was a very talented Russian um, architect, artist, painter. You know, and this this was, of course, in the in the early part of the 1800s. And so unfortunately, Hartman had uh, had a stroke, I believe it was, or a brain aneurysm and and died at a very early age. And so a few of the leading members of the Russian artistic community, they said, well, we have to do something in his honor and put together this exposition of some five or six hundred works. And so Mussorgsky was very touched by that. And he basically builds uh, a piece, a very programmatic piece around somebody going and taking a look at the art exhibition. And so you have these promenades, which are the, that's the French for kind of walking around and um, basically, that those are interludes between the different artistic works that he that he chooses to represent, and so uh, the promenade basically starts where you're just the the viewer, and then eventually it becomes part of the actual music, and we'll get into that. But uh, there are different vignettes, and we'll go through each of the vignettes today, and those are split, like I said, by the by the promenades. Uh, Mussorgsky was also influenced by various cultures, so obviously French from that title and some other um, French influences in there, the Tuileries, for example, or Tuileries in French. And then you've got the Polish influences with the Bidwo, the L with a line through it is a W in Polish, so you've got the ox cart. Uh, you've got some Jewish influences in there, um, Shmuel 
uh, Goldenberg, and you've got some Russian influences, obviously, with Baba Yaga, uh, you know, the famous witch in, in Russian um, literature that's supposed to scare kids. We'll get into her and The Great Gate. <laughs> and you've got some Italian influences, the old uh, Vecchio Castello, I think it is in Italian. So, yeah, a lot of different influences in there. Um, and of course, the pentatonic scale, which we were talking about, a lot of pentatonicism in there, which is pretty universal, but certainly uh, very effective and, and prominent in Eastern musics, uh, especially of the of the Orient, the, the Far East. Uh, and that's why I was saying last time we spoke that his piece is quite, uh, quite per- often performed in China, in South Korea, etc. There are more and more pianists of those countries. Uh, recording the work partly because they're you know, also going to all these big schools, but there's something to the the piece that speaks to that culture because uh, you know their cultures don't have a twelve tone uh, chromatic scale like Western music does. So anyway, it's it's really a worldly work, uh, and that's one of the things that drew me to it. So uh, that's a little bit of, of the background. I'm really excited. Yeah, which is interesting because you know uh, Russian. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I would never, I, I don't know, maybe it's my naivete or whatever, but but my, um, I wouldn't think of Russian music necessarily as cosmopolitan, um, mm-hmm. but uh, but this piece really does, and 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 it, you know, and I guess Russian music in general does expand because of of, of and you mentioned this in in the in the last interview that we talked in our last discussion that you know because of where it sits in the world. Um, kind of in between um, Western Europe, um, the Far East, um, and even, um, uh, you know, even the, the Middle East to a certain degree. I mean, it's mm-hmm. all kind of in that that kind of general area that, that there's a lot to draw from musically mm-hmm. and, and from a soundscape standpoint. Yeah, and I like the word you use, cosmopolitan. I mean, we have to still keep in mind that this is high art, so it's not like uh... – you know, the, the peddlers in the street might play this, but they might hear right. it um, because a lot of this is drawn from folk music. So that's another influence and makes it more universal. So I, I think it's one of the most universal high art pieces uh, you can really have. So we I think we really have to discuss the promenade a little bit because it's sure. it's so it's it's such a beautiful and wonderful uh, uh, music. It, you know, it's just it's gorgeous and and. And and universal, it, it reminds me it like any kind of fanfare. It reminds me, you know, the uh, fanfare of a common man. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got such you know, those open notes and and kind of big jumps, but but very triumphal. And here we march almost. So why don't you talk about about it from your perspective? What about the promenade and the the tune itself? Sure. And I think what you're bringing up too is important when we talk about how to perform something. And and this is a misunderstood aspect of let's say music performances that, Oh, well you just play the notes and do what the composer says. And, um, but there are so many ways to interpret things and that depends on how you see the actual work. So let's just take this apart for a second. Um, the meter is very interesting in this promenade. Most pieces in the classical tradition, you know, you're going to have four, four, three, four, maybe two, four, maybe three, eight, six, eight, some compound meters, um, this piece starts in 5-4 and goes to 6-4 and then 5-4, 6-4. So it's a combined 11-4 meter feel, which is quite rare. Uh, and, and, you know, yeah. you have that prime number. Um, so it doesn't feel that you're 
you're ever set in one place. It doesn't feel like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. It, it's just kind of all over. And so you don't know where the downbeat is. And I think that's genius because this is just somebody walking through a hall. You don't want to see them step or stop at every four steps or something. It's just kind of random, yeah. but still structured. So I think it's very interesting how he did that. Um, and the other thing is he has these, these leaps uh, often of fourths, what we call open fourths, that's very common in uh, in folk music, especially in, in Russian tradition. If you look at Balakirev and, and Borodin and Rimsky-Korsakov, they all have these da-da-da, you know, those kinds of, those kinds of uh, uh, themes or leaps. And so in this case, we have da-da-dum, that's already a fourth, da-da-dum, that's, that's another fourth. And the rhythm is also right. very interesting to kind of throw you off. Um, if we look at the notation, we, we see that they're all tenuto, so they're all very long, uh, and it's allegro uh, giusto, or very, uh, you know, the gesture is very big and grand. And so you could think of it as marching. I mean, it's certainly walking around, maybe walking with, with some real fortitude. But I also see it partly because I played it for, for a very prominent um, Russian slash Armenian pianist, uh, Sergei Babayan. And he, he mentioned that it's almost like singing the, the very vocal quality of Russian song, which makes oh, itself yeah. into a lot of Russian music. It's very open and very vocal. Uh, you do have a pretty large register, but still it would be very, um, enig not enigmatic. Uh, what's the word I'm trying to think? Uh, very well written, let's say, for the voice. I can't think of the word right now. Um, idiomatic. It's very idiomatic for the voice. So you can think of this as yeah. like a Russian, maybe uh, a tenor or something, singing over the countryside. And your interpretation of playing it and the way you, you kind of sway in and out is going to be very different than if you see it as a, as a march. So um, I try to mix those those characters and and have uh, think of the broad open gestures and then he gets into some chords and some of the chords are very dense and some of the chords are very uh spread out or open uh and i think he was very mm -hmm. careful about choosing the the difference between the closed and open things now we will notice that there are not only parallel octaves because of the left hand but voice leading there are a lot of incorrect voice leading things happening so if you were to look at this from a purely Germanic uh, standpoint of, of correct and proper sort of harmony and voice leading and, and compositional technique, uh, like the school of Bach and, and Mozart and whatnot, Beethoven, this would be incorrect. Right. You know, Mussorgsky is breaking rules. He's doing parallel fifths and parallel octaves. Uh, and so Rimsky-Korsakov, his friend, uh, after Mussorgsky died, tried to correct some of those things in, in this piece and his other works as well. Uh, and I think it takes a lot of the rawness away and that folk tradition away. Uh, I think Mussorgsky had that in his mind and didn't have that conservatory training, but that's what makes it sound more folky and, and uh, yeah. I, I hope that well, makes I think sense. I think um, a lot of people misunderstand like folk music, peasant music as being simple. And, and I love mm -hmm. how you mentioned the, um, you know, the different time signatures and things, because mm -hmm. it, you look up, you know, Bartok, who, who used a ton of, yeah. of folk music um, and, and you, you just listen to how people sing. You, you listen to how people 
sing naturally be at a campfire um you know they're not going to be singing right on the beat four four you know they're 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 dropping beats they're adding beats and if you listen to a lot of these these tunes especially i think um a lot of these tunes in um in that area of the world um where where you're maybe they're they're not quite as um accustomed to hearing just straight four four music and and things that that these folk tunes really they, they more they more take a line as the words would or they take a yeah. line as as a, a natural um figure if you if you will mm-hmm. and so i i do like how you bring that up with the promenade because it does feel like it's it's it, it, it there is there isn't quite an ending it, it just it it just kind of um, crashes on top of itself, mm-hmm. to, you know. Um, it's, yeah, it's interesting you talk about around a campfire. Like, I feel that anybody in the Western world today would sing in 3 4 or 4 4 um, if they had any sort of musical background or saying at all. Uh, I'm not speaking of people that just have no training or, or tone deaf or whatever, or not really counting, but all of our pop music, everything is in pretty standard. Uh, rhythms and and meters like three four four four. I can only think off the top of my head of someone like Sting, who goes a little bit outside those boundaries, uh, in, right. in his po- relatively pop music. But um, still, in in Eastern Europe and some of these places, a lot of the folk tunes were not in four four. And so, like you said with Bartok, he has a lot of pieces in five four, seven four, um, nine. I've seen things in nine, and they're not compound meters they're like nine yeah. four. So. Um, and it's interesting now when someone like Brahms writes in, let's say six four, like the first concerto, that's first of all more divisible. It's it's a you know it's not a prime number, uh, and it can be divisible by two or three. So you do get more of this these bigger chunks that are equal, but you can't really divide yeah. up Bartok or or this promenade into equal sections. They're always unequal because of the the odd or in this case the prime numbers. So, so we finished this first opening promenade and we, mm-hmm. and we head into the first vignette and it is just a crash. It is just a wake up. <laughs> so let's yeah. talk about that for a minute. Well, Nomis is really, like you said, it just hits you in, in, the, in the stomach. Uh, and this is the, this little, little gnome. It's a sort of grotesque figure. I wrote I, in my thesis, irascible and disfigured 
little little gnome. And um, again, this opening figuration is a seven-note figure, and it's ataka, which means immediately after the promenade. So there's no real break. Okay, we finished the movement. Now let's everybody cough, and and you know that's why I love this piece too. Is a lot of the movements are ataka, so you go straight through. There are no moments where you can just stop and and think. It's okay. Here, here's another picture immediately. Right. Um, so yeah, this is a, a real tour de force, especially the end. But mm-hmm. I'll talk a little bit about the piece. It um, it goes through many different characters of the gnome, and I think it shows his different his different sides. And maybe there, you, one could argue there are, are a couple gnomes in this. So you've got that opening, and then as an echo uh-huh. kind of in the background, um, and then you have these chords, dun 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 dun. dun very very ominous very mysterious it's sort of like that uh, movie music now you'd watch jaws or something that's uh, maybe a horror film i mean this is so well written for the cinema um oh for sure for the orchestra in a way because you can have all these different you know instruments doing these parts uh and i believe in the ravel orchestration this uh, is flute or uh or piccolo or something like that and then the low basses and tuba and then you have this do da do dum uh, with very interesting kind of, vo- uh, not voice leading, but um, not even harmonies because they're only dyads, really. They're two notes at a time. But the relationship and the intervals between them are pretty weird. A lot of uh, tritones um, and going to fifths, a lot of minor sixths, a lot of augmented thirds are just weird intervals. Um, and that gets Yeah, to it definitely keeps big. you off balance, and then balance you have as a the listener. Trill. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, I was these little trills are kind of. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's good. You're right. It does. It it's weird. I mean, again, this is the the rawness of Mussorgsky, and this is the um, the thing that really draws one to it. In fact, when we talk about additions and things like that, this is one of the movements where there's a lot of debate on. I mean, it's one or two notes, but that makes a difference. You know, do you go up? For example, I'm talking about measure 44. For those of you that have a score. Um, in the right hand, some people see, uh, I think that's the measure where there's a, another note in some editions. Um, and and so it's like, is it a perfect fifth? Is it a minor sixth? Uh, and that, I talk about that in my thesis as well, that there are a lot of notes here. This change. might be a good place to discuss this a little bit because I think it is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned it how Ramsey Korsakov uh, tried to quote fix a lot of the a lot of his how he, how he wrote, um, and and really, I you have to say it's it was it's a tribute to him. In other words, he saw it as a complete genius piece of work that he was trying to, you know, in my opinion, it seems to me was trying to make presentable. Um, you know, mm-hmm. to everyone, to a greater um, public, yeah. But uh, correct, yeah, yeah. Um, but what does it what does it lose? And and, and how many different versions or, or um, uh, you know versions is the right word I'm looking for? Uh, yeah, versions different or manuscripts. Versions. Yeah, um, yeah. So well, there are a lot of questions in there. Um, so manuscripts, you know, there there's one manuscript in his hand, and I've actually got a copy i was very lucky to get a copy of the facsimile so when i got this i believe there was only one or there might have been two in the u.s at the time and uh one was at iu and i made some very high def color um color scans of that 
And so that's what I what I sent you. Very interesting to see things in his own hand, especially sections where he'll just cross out and, and rewrite completely. Um, there are a couple notes where it's like, oh, is that clear or is that not clear? Um, but one section I, I love because one of the editions I use, the editor, and I think it's a great scholarly edition, she said that uh, the note was, I don't remember, a C-flat, and uh, and a lot of people play yes. uh, B-flat or whatever. But actually, it was not the C-flat. It was the B-flat, so, something like that. In this piece, it's actually in measure, I was looking at my notes here, measure 34, uh, Rimsky-Korsakov changes that C-flat to a B-flat so that it, that is consistent with the previous measures like that. So Rimsky-Korsakov might have been in this tradition where it's like, okay, this this kind of thing is done one, two, three, uh, and that has to follow a certain pattern. And here Mussorgsky changes it, and it kind of adds a little bit of a twist uh, and an edge to it, and Rimsky-Korsakov takes that out, smooths, smooths it out. So a lot of the edginess was taken out with Rimsky-Korsakov's addition, or uh, um, yeah, it, it, uh, edits, I should nice. say. And so what happens is what comes down to us in history is more Rimsky-Korsakov's version because his what was his version was the one that was kind of disseminated outside Russia more. Uh, Henry Wood used that. Uh, Ravel certainly used that edition to uh, make his orchestration. And so we're, we've come, uh, you know, 150 years later, down to having a certain sound in our ear, but then you go back to the original, and some of the notes sound wrong. Uh, but that's that's how Mussorgsky envisioned it and how he heard it. So, which is an interesting one to discuss. Which is, uh, you know, when the artist finishes his work, d- does it really belong to him? <laughs> in the sense that, um, you know, it becomes such a cultural force. At what point, what is the right thing to do or what is the right one? And, and, and I tend to lean towards, you know, let's do what the composer intended. Um, but, but I can see an argument for, for somebody saying, hey, listen, this is, this is, this is how um, it's come down in history. This is now the historical version. And, um, and this is what we, we can gain from it. Um, you know, versus specifically what the, the composer intended at that time. And, and maybe because um, maybe he didn't intend it and the role of an editor becomes very murky at that point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot to discuss here about perform- historical performance practice, which has really taken off, especially when you look at Baroque performances in the last 25 to 30 years, uh, and especially the emergence of not only musicology, but ethnomusicology. So you you have people that are looking at these pieces, uh, let's say by Bach, and saying, well, he wouldn't have played it with that kind of a bow for a string instrument. Um, those bowings would be different. Mm. He would have used, or for piano, he would have used a harpsichord. So uh, I think I think it was there was a discussion between Wanda Landowska and I can't remember who else, but another very prominent keyboardist, and Wanda Landowska played harpsichord. And I, can, I can't remember her name now. But anyway... The quote was something like, because the other pianist was saying, well, we should be able to play Bach on the piano. And, you know, he would have loved the piano had he known it. And Landowska said, well, you can play Bach your way. I'll play it his way. You know, saying like, this this is the way. Now, (laughs) that's a little bit of a a jab. And I don't quite agree with that. I think Glenn Gould made a good good, uh, argument for playing it on, on piano and lots of things you can do. But that whole concept of what does a composer actually mean is is very tough because sometimes the composer doesn't leave much indication as to what they want. And uh, they would have assumed that you would have known growing up in that time to, to do such and such. 
Uh, we also have tradition, which changes, you know, fashion, things become more fashionable and less fashionable. You know, we play certain classical music perhaps faster now than we used to in, in the 50s and 60s where it was very slow, but we play other things much slower now than would have been played back then. Um, so it's very hard to kind of take away that cultural baggage and strip down the onion, you know, to the core and say, what did the composer actually mean? There's still some subjectivity and I think a good example for the listeners, if, if you know, listen to, for example, um, the, um, the 1940s or 50s, I can't remember which, you know, when exactly it was recorded, but it's an older version of, very famous version of the Hallelujah Chorus, Messiah, uh, sung by the, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Mm. And it's very big and, you know, slow and, you know, mm. it's just... And you listen to modern versions of it, and you have a much smaller orchestra, a much smaller choir, and it gives a much different feel, and and, and it's probably more consistent with the historical record of, of what was actually, you know, how it was actually performed. Yeah. And but it, it's it's a different flavor, and um, yeah. But we also have to keep in mind that our ears are not the same, and that's the biggest thing I think that's missed in the historical right. performance aspect is, you know, you can play it exactly how they wanted. You can play it in a in a hall, in a small church, or in a castle, you know, with the correct dress and, and with the correct instruments and the correct bow holds and everything, but our ears today are just different from what they were, not not biologically, but just we, we've heard different things. We're used to different things, so we won't hear it in the same way as they would have back then. Exactly. Very true. Yeah. And that's I'm sure that subject will come up <laughs> a little bit it's more. It's very interesting um, to think about this trifecta of, and there are many different trifectas I think of in my life. I mean, three is a magical number, but in teaching, it's about the teacher, student, and the parents. You know, in performing, you've got the audience, the performing performer, and the composer. And somebody like John Cage tried to remove himself completely and just make it a, a linear relationship. But he still, I don't think, could quite manage to to do that, to withdraw himself when he, you know, wrote aleatoric music and things like that. I still think there's some influence of a composer in there. And I think there's a quote from like Paul Simon or somebody or. I can't remember one of the Beatles. Anyway, that uh, the the audience is the last composer because they really you, you can do whatever you want, but they hear based on what their ears and mind are culturally trained for, um, and right. so that makes a big big difference. Yeah. And and you know ultimately it's like the most democratic in this in the sense that every single audience member is going to hear it differently yeah. because they bring their own cultural baggage and their right. own things that they've they've heard. Right. Um, yeah. You and I are going to hear the same piece quite differently, yeah. I'm sure. Oh, for sure, yeah, um, yeah. Even even with my fellow pianists that uh, I went to school with, you know, we might have studied with the same teacher even. And we hear, I might hate a piece and they might love a piece. And I might hear a certain piece and think, oh, you need to do this in that uh, piece. And they say, no, it, it's totally this way, you know, and we, we have total disagreements on that. But that's the nature of music, too. Well, and that's where that's, uh, you know, great artists. And, and I love you brought up Glenn Gould. I, mm -hmm. I love the story of him playing the, the um, was it was it the well tempered cl clavier in, in Moscow? Um, yeah, and, where people were literally calling too, people yeah. up and saying, "Come, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, that's it." And and <laughs> just you know, you've got to hear. This is the most 
different, interesting performance we've ever heard of this, you know, 250 year old piece. Yeah. yeah I, and, I don't remember uh, the program, but I do remember in the art of a piano, you've probably seen that, that movie. And, yes. uh, the first half, I don't think it was very full. The hall was maybe half full or a third full. And, and he was playing and by, by intermission. Yeah. Like you said, people were calling up the relatives, like you have to come and hear this guy. This is the new, and this was a huge thing, the West and the E and, and Russia, you know, uh, this was USSR meeting. So it's funny right. if you look at what kind of broke the uh, the Iron Curtain. A lot of it was culture. Chess was a big one. Bobby Fischer versus oh. versus Spassky. Yeah. These were sort of the cultural things that helped bring about the close of that of that Cold War era. Um, and yeah, so certainly Glenn Gould was one of those emissaries, should we say, from the West, and just brought such a fresh look to absolutely to Bach I think he was in his early 20s when he played that concert and people were just floored in Russia yeah so right it was pretty amazing yeah they never heard it yeah. quite that way at all I think um yeah um and and you know I don't want to not not to get too much on this subject but but you know to bring it back to modern like today specifically mm -hmm. you know we need some emissaries today and maybe they can be artists that can bring our culture back together <laughs> and, yeah, and uh, so we can are. start talking yeah. to one another i think artists are trying to do that and and cross-cultural extremes yeah it's great to see yeah so this so let's let's get into the, the next promenade um mm -hmm. We're, we're moving out of the, the gnomes world <laughs> and, right. uh, and we have this, this second iteration of the promenade. Yeah. So this is in a different key and it's very um, placid and just easy, especially coming from that, that last lick of about four, four and a half measures in the gnomus, which I think is maybe the hardest uh, technical spot in the piece. Uh, and if you want to see a real uh, incredible performance. Are, are you talking about in the, in in the, 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 about the entire uh, in the, pictures? Entire, entire pictures. That's one of the hardest spots is the end of Nomis, the last four measures of Nomis. So, and why, uh, just quickly, why is that? Why is it so difficult? Well, it's extremely fast. You People will probably hear, hear it in the recording, but um, it's also very unpianistic in some ways. Uh, the our, our hands, our bodies like symmetry, and so we like either similar fingerings or going in the same direction. And a lot of that, that writing is contrary and then parallel, then contrary again. Uh, so it's just very awkward. Um, and I think the the person that best really uh, amplifies, no, I can't, signifies, I don't know, represents that is uh, Evgeny Kisin. Okay. He has an incredible version uh, from his, his live concert at an amphitheater. I forgot where, but it's great recording of that. And it's just so powerful. And everybody wants to play that powerfully. And I can tell you in performance – Every time I hear this, it gets to that. I'm like, okay, here we go. Let's see what this pianist can do. And um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm never satisfied with how I do it. I, I always wish I could do it faster and more powerfully and more, you know, flashy. But I, it's very challenging. <laughs> Thank you. 
So after that big flourish ending, we've got a very um, placid and easygoing promenade, which is much more, well, it's, first of all, it's in another key. You're in, you're in A flat, basically, or D flat, E flat, a lot of flat keys, which is quite different from the opening promenade. Um, and this ends quite high in a very high register. So the the uh, thematic content, though it's the same, the feeling is much different in this promenade. And then that leads very easily into the, yeah, into Il Vecchio Castello. And again, Mussorgsky was very good about matching the characters to prom, from promenade to the next piece. And so that promenade ends very peacefully, and then you get this drone. And Il Vecchio Castello is sort of a depiction of uh, a troubadour. We're thinking now in the 12, 13, 1400s, Troubadour singing with his guitar mm -hmm. or whatever the predecessor, you know, some mandolin of some sort uh, in front of an old castle, maybe to a maiden in the castle. We don't know. But um, and, and Mussorgsky has all the layers built into this piece. So he's got the drone. Uh, which would be, you know, bottom string or open two right. strings. And then you've got the dun, 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 da, 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 which would probably be plucking the the top two strings, you know, plucking out that melody, maybe a, a two troubadours singing, a little little right. traveling group. And then you've got the very vocal line. Again, opens with the fourth. Da, 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 um, da, da, da. Sorry, I'm also singing in the wrong key. I don't have perfect perfect pitch. But, um, yeah, very interesting how he layers all of these things together. Um, beautifully done. Well, it, it is very beautiful. And, and, and I always love when you have a, a drone or a, um, or a pedal tone or something of that nature going on, mm -hmm. having these interesting chords kind of wrap around those tones mm -hmm. always just makes me smile. I, I love how, how he does it specifically because you can hear him, you know, changing keys and 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 modulating here and there mm -hmm. um but keeping that 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 drone going and, and keeping that very it stays very melodic through the whole piece mm -hmm. and that actually makes uh when you when you talk about that you said how the harmonies interact with the drone it's interesting because on the piano you've got to you've got to be very careful about pedaling and voicing and the mixture of those because it's the same timbre whereas with an orchestra you can have different timbres and and registers so things uh, can clash, but they won't sound so jarring to the ear. With uh, piano performance, you have to be very careful and, and subjective about how you choose what's going to come out. Um, and so I, I remember studying this, and it seems like a very easy vignette, but just the control of sound I found uh, on this in this piece was was quite difficult. Um, and to bring out exactly what you want and to have things not be muddy, but then to have certain things hold. So you've got to do some finger substitutions and, and very good finger legato or super legato. 
So um, very, uh, you know, deceivingly simple, I should say. Yeah, I and and well, and, and by the way, um, f- again for the audience, um, we are we are uh, mixing in, we're we're interplaying these different vignettes, these different pieces um, within this this recording, and, and these are all recordings courtesy of Elias and and Axel Records, and we're very grateful to for permission to do that. Sure. Um, but I do love your performance of this. This this is Thanks. it really it sucks you in and. And you do, you hear the different, um, uh, the, it is like you're hearing different textures, mm-hmm. um, almost, almost as if part of the piano is a little bit further away mm-hmm. <laughs> in some parts. It's, it's really well done. Oh, thanks. Yeah, this is uh, another movement that's a little bit controversial because this, in this one, it's very easy to get bored uh, at even performing it and listening to it. And, you know, it's fairly close to the beginning of the work. So you don't want to lose audiences this early on. Um, and I was talking last in our first session about uh, Pogorelic and his recording, and the controversy behind it is that it's just so darn slow. Uh, and sometimes it's brilliant what he can do with that, but in this particular piece, I think it's so slow that you miss the, or he misses the line, the connectivity of the line. Uh, I believe my recording, I don't have it on me, but I probably take four and a half minutes or something. Um, you take, I can tell you, I can tell you exactly. Okay. Uh, you, hold on, where is it? You take on that one, 3.55. Okay, four, so four minutes. Um, and I, yeah. I would say the fastest I've heard this is probably about three, three and a half minutes. Now, Pogorelic, his version takes upwards of six or six and a half minutes. It's wow. it's almost, uh, almost twice as slow, but certainly one and a half times as slow. And so that vocal line becomes almost... Uh, impossible. Nobody could sing it like that unless maybe they were a trained opera singer to have that much sustain. Um, and then the drums right. would probably die out too, and and it just becomes kind of difficult. We have to keep in mind this is probably a guitar transcription uh, on the piano. You know, this the, the, is the guitarist or mandolinist um, playing, and those instruments don't carry very much either. There's a much smaller range in dynamics with a guitarist, even the the best concert guitar nowadays can hardly match what a you know, mezzo piano, mezzo forte would be on the piano. And so there's no way you right. can sustain those notes. And even plucking them on the guitar, there would be no way to sustain those notes long enough um, to really s- satisfy the notation here. So, I mean, that, I don't want to get too objective and just say he's wrong, but I feel that subjectively it just doesn't quite hold together. And that's one of the things that, that loses me in that recording. Um, yeah. So th- this movement, you have to be very I, I careful. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Not too right. fast. Not too slow. And then. Uh, yeah. It's 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 the it's the Goldilocks or you know. Yeah. Yeah. Goldilocks. <laughs> you be just right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I should have put that in my thesis. Goldilocks.
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Not too fast, not too slow, just right. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and then we get into one. I, you know, and I love this little promenade. This next one, mm-hmm. it's so cool. Um, you know, it 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 it. it, it Builds beautifully into the and um, to the next vignette, but uh, talk about this next promenade a little bit. Yeah, so I think people, if you listen to the whole performance, you'll notice that uh, they're getting shorter. The promenades are getting shorter. The first one was full yes. two pages, a couple minutes, and then the next one's shorter. This one's only two lines, and it really acts as just a good transition. Maybe you were in the art gallery and you just went, you were right next to another section and saw something immediately. And he's very good with the keys as well the key changes so we ended in g sharp minor and then we're sort of in a in a b sharp b major and or uh, f sharp major uh, or potentially c sharp i mean a lot of a lot of different sections here and uh it could if it's in c sharp we're, we're going five to one but this one is in a sharp key so already we're feeling a little bit heightened there's a lot more energy uh it's more grandiose mm-hmm. but it actually ends very coyly so it just you're da 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 in octaves and then da 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 rest da da da. Okay, that's kind of an invitation. It's a teaser for what's coming next. And um, uh-huh. it's interesting. He wrote a rest, but then an ataka. So you have the Tuileries, uh, which is dispute d'enfant après jeu, and this is the children's quarreling at play, basically in a in a Parisian garden. And again, that promenade, the end of it, that teasing quality sets up this perfectly. And this is such an amazing, this is one of my favorite vignettes, um, one of the hardest technically as well. But this theme, there are many things written about that and some ideas. And one of them is the idea that the kids are playing and kind of teasing each other and like, that kind of thing. Right. And so I think that's very well um put into the music or translated into the music. And I think Mussorgsky was one of the best at doing that, at taking words or uh, a vocal line, but certainly words and setting them to music. I think Janáček was another one of those that could really take that, the, the character of speaking. And I don't mean in a recitativo fashion like Mozart would do in, a, in an opera, which is great, but somehow making really great music of, of the speaking character.
does this and, and um, point to um, kind of future works? In other words, you know, some of this we talk about this is kind of in in the heart of maybe maybe the later mid of the Romantic period. Um, you know, but it's really starting. Some of this is starting to point. Um, a little bit to WC, a little bit to, you know, some um, uh, more impressionistic um, yeah. kind of feel. Um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's a big topic. And I would actually say not so much in this movement, but there is the French uh, connection here, which is important. And uh, But some of the, the movements, right. the harmonies, they really start to um, lose a central focus, sort of a tonic almost, which is the very Germanic mm -hmm. uh, tradition, whereas with the, the new French school, when it came, when it developed with Satie, really even as early as Saint-Saëns, um, they they focused more on open fourths and fifths and not so much tonal centers. And then, of course, Schoenberg tried to destroy that completely and have every tone be uh, equal. But um, we're not quite there yet. But yeah, certainly Mussorgsky had a lot of influence. We, we have to keep in mind, too, uh, Europe, at the time, uh, Eastern, Western Europe, you know, all, all these empires, basically, this is, you know, there was no country of Germany at this time. There were all these little, little, um, uh, I don't know what to call also them. Kingdoms. Kingdoms, sort of, yeah. And and even Italy, I don't know if Italy was a unified, maybe, I, I have to look at my history. France was, you know, England, but was still quite separate. Um, and Russia certainly had a lot of different, uh, a lot of different separations, I guess. But, you know, you had regions and cities that were very prominent, but re and you had Austro-Hungarian Empire before, right before this, uh, around this time actually. And so you get all these royal families, and and actually most of them are related. Uh, there's a lot of inbreeding going on there, but uh, French right. <laughs> French was really the international language. Uh, it was the language used at the court. It was the language of law, and so all the Russian aristocrats. And remember, Mussorgsky was from that. Uh, aristocracy, maybe the minor aristocracy, but the, he came from the landed gentry, and so he spoke French. And certainly, uh, in the in the Russian courts, the main language spoken was French. And so, when a lot of these uh, these Russian families had nannies, and actually, Nyanya is also nanny, uh, and that's one of the interpretations potentially of this oh. opening is that nanny. Um, and so a lot of them had nannies and they were taught French or the nannies might be French. I was bringing up once with you, maybe in, in a conversation, uh, I think Nadezda van Mech. And I think she, I can't remember exactly the connection, but she was a nanny to Debussy's kids or had some connection with that, but also a connection to right. Tchaikovsky. And she was very supportive of the Russian um, that early Russian contingent of composers, Tchaikovsky, uh, Anton Rubinstein, and uh, Mussorgsky, Balakir, Avrimsky, Korsakov, etc. And so there is, I'm just saying, there's a lot of cross-cultural exchange, but France really was was uh, quite dominant in these ways. So um, I wonder if that's why there's there's some of that in here. Um and, and also Debussy, if you look at his early works, he was very interested in the Far East, uh, gamelan music, right. especially. So, and again, a lot of pentatonics, a pentatonic, lot of... Right. Um, so you listen to Pagode you know, and you get all those colors. Um, and Mussorgsky was, was similarly situated. And so there is quite a connection. It's hard to say, you know, which came first or which influenced the other. 
you know, that's sort of a chicken or egg question, but there was certainly a lot of overlap and crossover. At this well, time. and I love that, that history you shared is so important because, because the overlap, you know, think of, think about, um, you know, how, how kids learn, um, culturally, you know, they're, they're, or how, who is their major influence? And it's going to be their mother, their nanny, mm -hmm. you know, and then later on their friends. Mm -hmm. And, but, but the, the, it, all of those, I guess, integrations, mm -hmm. you know, um, play a huge role in, 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 you know, how art can, uh, this continuum of art. And, and it, it is kind of a, a misrepresentation to say, okay, this is the romantic period. This right. is the, you, you know, whatever. Put a date, it's, it's right. a, Right. Yeah. You have to, it is this continuation and this, this kind of forward progress that art takes and, and music specifically is yeah. just, you know, it seems to be increasing in that, in that, um, yeah. forward motion. There's a lot of overlap. Um, I mean, we do have to study history and kind of have some dates to, to categorize right. our, our minds like to categorize. Well, just so we can understand right. it. But, but when you get deeper into it, you realize how much of an over, overlap, um, and two things you were mentioning mothers and nannies and friends and all that uh, in this culture, you know, if you had a nanny, you were a rich family, the, the kids were often closer to the nannies. So if you had a French nanny or something, they might've been closer to them than the parents. So of course there's sure. a hierarchical structure too. You know, you, you would refer to your nannies, even the kids would in a, in a two form, like in French, like a informal form. And, uh -huh. and the nannies might respond to the kids actually in a formal way, but the kids would respond to their parents with the formal vu, you know. So we don't have that. We don't have that built into the English language. You just have you. You know, there's no like formal you and informal you. Right. That's maybe tone of voice, but uh, in a lot of most Latinate languages, you have that built in. So you know, when I studied Spanish and, and French too, I, I speak both of them, and there's that you know like tu usted in Spanish and uh, tu and vu in French. And so that's, that's one of the things. And then, you know, let's look at Beethoven, for example, we have his early middle and late period. Do you think that when he was 39 or whatever, he's like, okay, I'm going to start writing in my middle period now. No, no, right. he was just writing <laughs> whatever was inspiring him at the time. And we can look to, uh, to see some you know progressions and maybe this goes a little bit more with that period and, and vice versa. But there is that con uh, continuum. Well, it's it's like music is is music is the type of, of thing that um, if, if we're going to talk about theory, for example, we can never talk about theory in the forward. We have to talk about it in the rear. We have mm -hmm. to look back and say this is this is what we think they were trying to do theoretically, yeah. but it doesn't mean that's what they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't like like with Musorski, you're talking about how with um, some of his uh, voicings and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the we look back at those things and try to understand it using our th our theory and using our, the knowledge that we have. But we it's it for a true artist, it's very hard to or it's it's very hard to look forward that way. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, well, I mean, this is like the student versus the artist. A student in a theory class, and, and then when I took theory in college, you know, we were asked to write small minuets and small little things and ternary and binary forms. And I always get asked the question nowadays, which I take offense to, but I really shouldn't because um, there are many, many layers to it. But people always ask me, you know, do you compose? And my first instinct is to say, well, not in this world, you know, we're, we're so specialized <laughs> and, and it's hard enough just to play all the piano music we have with the competition out there. 50 or 100 years right. ago, 
you know, there wasn't that whole tradition and, and people were still playing contemporary, like Rachmaninoff, he was playing his own things. That was contemporary 100 years ago or, or even right. 70 years ago. Uh, it just isn't anymore. We, we rarely play contemporary works. And that's that's another discussion why we don't. But um, so it's rare to have a real pianist composer nowadays they're just like in any field you get specializations you know a doctor uh 50 60 years ago you'd have a doctor come to your house and they did everything you know oh, you have blood pressure problems or oh, you have heart problems or you have lung problems or oh, you have a foot problem i'll do a little surgery like now you go to a thoracic surgeon now you go to a you know heart surgeon now you have a cancer specialist you know so many specializations uh, and so pian- uh, music has gotten to be like that. And rarely do you find a great pianist who is a great composer, uh, somebody like Marc-André mm-hmm. Amla, I can think of right now, or Volodos, you know, um, great transcriber. It's just rare today. Well, and it has transformed. And, and, and again, I think uh, in a way Gould was a was – a, um, kind of expressed it the best when he talked about he and Bach composing together as mm-hmm. they perform, as he performed, yeah. you know, I think, um, as a performer, as, as you're, as you're performing this piece, it, it, it's not like you're trying to embody the composer that you're playing. In fact, you are trying to compose your own version of his work and that it's in itself is such a demanding, um, you know, thing to do yeah. and how, how to stay true to it. It's very hard. Um, and some people might stay true to what they think is staying true to the composer. And I might disagree with that. Uh, and so there's right. this, the discussion of, are you doing the composer's work or, or really transcribing it? And especially in this piece uh, that comes with the four, but I want to take a step back one, one second about composing a work. You know, I would have uh, learned a form maybe and said, okay, now let's, let's compose something in this form as an exercise. But a great composer already has that, uh, all those tools in their mind. So they're not right. thinking, I think that's why you're saying looking forward, not looking backward. And theory always comes after it's sort of a, an analysis of what's come before. It's not the impetus to write the piece. You know, may, maybe exactly. maybe Beethoven had a form that he wanted to pursue, but he had all those things in his mind, and he probably just wrote something out. And, and then, okay, what harmonies go with this? Well, okay, how can I move this around? But he didn't think, okay, I'm in this section of whatever. Let let me do such and such. He knew where it was. So, um, yeah, right. I think that's what you're trying to. And do it was not. Way. Yeah, it wasn't paint by numbers. Right. You know, for the right. it was it was. Um, this is this is this is what I'm trying to express, and I'm either going to use the art form for or against the expression that I'm trying to yeah. do. You know, in other words, I'm either going to use it perfectly, and that's going to say one thing, or I'm going to go against it, and that's going to say something completely yeah. different. And they had all those forms in their mind. I mean, Bach and, Be- and Mozart, all, they were so highly right. trained, it was like second nature. Then when we get to the Romantic era, a lot of the forms start to progress and develop and change, and we get new forms. Um, and even, you know, into contemporary 20th, 20th and 21st century music, we really expand into the possibilities. But um, and there's there's a lot out there. Now I'm trying to think what, what we were just talking about. And uh, going back to that, I can't remember. Um, Glenn Gould. Oh, oh, uh, oh, oh yes. Um, so being, <laughs> being part of like the new composer of the piece. And this piece in particular, because... We've had Rimsky Korsakov's version per se, and we've gotten many different things handed down, and uh, people have taken it upon themselves, like Horowitz, to almost rewrite some of the movements. Like the Great Gate, completely changes. Um, somebody like uh, Mikhail Pletnyov, 
does some really fascinating things in the corn mortuous and it's almost like he's not playing piano uh now does that mean he's not playing what what uh, Mussorgsky wrote no not not necessarily but the the way he interprets it, interprets it and the effects that he chooses to interpret his vision are you know i would have never thought of that um right so i just there's it's, so it's much. using the scaffolding of the piece yeah. to to create something new yeah like there's a place that has tremolos we'll get into that but you can do a tremolos a you know back and forth on the octaves um but i've heard some versions where they go like a very measured tremolo between two octaves alternating it's not a real tremolo but the effect can be very uh very sublime so you know is that not following what mussorgsky wrote because he clearly wrote tremolo uh 